from the mouth of babes come true. <laughs> well, Isaac, I delight to meet you really for the first time Wednesday. It's good to see you. And teens, catechism, teen catechism this week, what are we having? Pizza. So remember that. Catechism went fantastic. We had 11, 11 teens downstairs. It was great. And nice haircut. Now, you don't know who I'm talking about, and it wasn't Darius. <laughs> All right. Well, take your Bibles and join me standing in honor of God's Word. We'll turn to John 17. We're going to examine the second portion of three of what Christ prayed about today, and this is verses 6 through 19, the blessed words of our Master. And then I'll pray, and then we'll open up Scripture. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep them in thy name, which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we while I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Blessed Holy Father, thou who art holy and righteous, yet we praise you that you phileo us tenderly, affectionate us, and you love us. And even as we sang the song, to God be the glory. The, the whole point of the gospel and of the signs to lead us back to the Father, to you. 
So we thank you for this joy, joy of being together forever. You are blessed, blessed, blessed. And we pray that today as we now engage the scripture that you'll give our ears and our eyes the ability to both see and hear, particularly your voice, Master. Your sheep hear your voice when you speak it. And Lord, soften our wills, soften our hearts that we might receive from thy hand, not my hand. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, sir. Beloved of the Father in heaven, we again softly with humbly thankful hearts approach the inner sanctum of John 17. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And while holiness is a definitive focus in this prayer of our gracious Savior, yet the intimacy of relationship is inescapable and profoundly touching. With bated breath, we listen to this exchange between the eternally begotten Son and his eternal Father, God. And what do we find? Well, we find our beloved Savior speaking of an eternality of glory mutually shared, of joy mutually shared, and of love mutually shared between them. The three eternal ones, Father, Son, and Spirit, dancing relationally from all eternity past. This this is ultimate reality, glory, joy, love, a beauty relationally that our hearts long for, finding only shadowy hints in the marriage relationship and in the parent-child relationship, because God is relational. Glory, joy, and love is relationally shared, shown, given, received from all eternity past. And so abounding is God's great heart that he spoke the worlds into existence and then said, let us make man in our own image. Hmm. Not out of necessity, nay, but out of the overflow of this great heart that has existed from eternally past. So I ask, do not our hearts swell anticipating heaven, anticipating the marriage feast of the Lamb? Do you ever think about that? What's going to be on the table? No bacon. I'm sad. I'm convinced. But there'll be the finest coffee and fruits and it's going to be good. So eat all the bacon you can here is my model. Well, last Lord's Day of divine worship, we entered the first portion, which is verses 1 through 5 of Christ's high priestly prayer. He prayed about himself in relationship to his father. 
Today, verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples, particularly his band of apostles. Next week, verses 20 through 26, he will pray for those who will believe through them. That's us. Explanation, verse 6. In verse 6, our beloved Savior begins to pray to the Father for his disciples and with the same warmth of love with which he would immediately suffer death on their behalf. He now pleads for their salvation. Remember, remember the context. Hours from this point, if that, he will enter into Gethsemane and be arrested. Hmm. Divine sovereignty pervades his words. Verse 6, I manifested thy name to them. Thou gavest them to me out of the world. They were thine, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Well, three things stand out in Christ's words here. First, the eternity of election that we'll touch on again. The eternity of election. Second, the election by free grace, when the Father gives us into the guardianship of his Son, Jesus Christ. Calvin says, quote, This is the point to which we should turn our eyes, that we may be fully certain that we belong to the rank of the children of God, for the predestination of God is in itself hidden, but it is manifested to us in Christ alone. Wow, yeah. We do not know the mind of the Father like that. The Spirit does, and the Son does. But when Jesus touches us, we know, we know. And third, the word of God, he says, takes root in the elect, and thus they are said to keep it. And they have kept thy word. So first pastoral reflection, <clears throat> am I keeping his word? I've cited that grand Christmas movie, a Christmas Carol, George C. Scott. At the close of the movie, it is said of Ebenezer Scrooge, no one kept Christmas better than he. And you get the idea. Am I keeping his word? If asked, what book or book of scripture are you currently reading through listening for your shepherd's voice, what response would you give? I do ask that of some, and I just might ask that of you. And you need to be asking that of each other. What's he teaching you? Here's what he taught me. Verse 7, Calvin says, He means that believers feel that all that they possess is heavenly and divine. And yes, what incredible peace and inner contentment is the child of God walking through fire, passing through water, knowing that the hand of the Savior is holding me, sustaining, and has promised our safety forever. 
Samuel Rutherford says in one of his letters, Yea, even when the flood waters reach over your head, the hand of your master is under your chin. Now we've seen that as Jenna took swimming lessons, where the teacher would, come on, float, swim, holding her chin. He does that for us. Verse 8, he references the words which thou gavest me, which point to a God-given message. And it is this that Jesus passed on to the apostles. Now think with me. You'll recall the Savior's promise that the Helper, this is 1426, that the Helper would bring to your remembrance all that I said. And further, in 1613, the Helper will teach them all things, guiding them into all the truth, and disclosing to them what is to come, 1613. And we discussed how Jesus in this final discourse, this is a virtual paraphrase, close to a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. Jesus promises the Gospels, everything that I said. He promises the epistles, lead you into all truth. And he promises the prophetic portions of the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, disclose to you the things to come. So Christ sets one of the key things of the apostles up the preached word and inscripturated word we call our New Testament. Blessed be God. It is important to notice the emphasis Jesus puts here upon divine revelation. His emphasis specific is the words that the Father gave him. These words he has passed on to the apostles who would also be guided further by the Holy Spirit. So the revelation God the Father had, he gave to the Son. God the Son gave that same revelation to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit breathed out the same divine revelation to the apostles who then preached that same divine revelation guided providentially and through the breathing out of the Spirit through them, preached that same revelation, and then the hand of the Spirit saw to it that they would write it down, inscripturate it. And so our New Testament, again, is being spoken of here. Blessed, blessed be God. What if all we had was Malachi? The ending of Malachi. Mm. We hold... In our hands, the very thing Christ prayed about to his Father in verse 8 of chapter 17. Doctrine, per verse 8. Observe the last phrase of verse 8. Look at that. That they believed that thou didst send me. In gospel presentations, it is customary that the emphasis is placed upon putting your faith or trust in Jesus, believing in Jesus, believing into Jesus. And all of that is true, but that's not Christ's focus in his high priestly prayer. In his high priestly prayer, 
Look at verse 8 again, last phrase. They have believed that thou didst send me. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, even as thou, Father, in me, I in thee, that they also may be in us, that, here it is, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. 23. That the world may know that thou didst send me. 25. And these have known that thou didst send me. If I'd been there, I think I, I certainly would have thought of the question. Master, I thought that the goal was that these might believe in me, that the world might believe in me. And it is. But observe the particularity of what he says, that these might believe that thou didst send me. Clearly, to the Father and the Son and the Spirit who breathed it out, the fact that the Father sent the Son is for this gospel of supreme importance. There is a dynamic, I use the word carefully in opposition to static, there is a dynamic father-son relationship from all eternity. There was a sending willed by the father, obeyed by the son due to love. Further entailment here, God is not a strict numeric monad. The father-son relationship that pervades the entirety of John blossoms in the final discourse in the Revelation. It's not just father and son, it's also helper, paraclete, the Holy Spirit. So God is a dazzling display of unity amidst diversity. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Amen. Verse 9, observe what Calvin describes here as a challenge. And it is particularly the first two phrases. You're looking at it, so you know what I'm referencing. Christ openly declares that he does not pray for the world, but only for those the Father has given him. Calvin says, and I quote, But this might be thought to be absurd. For no better rule of prayer can be found than to follow Christ as our guide and teacher. And we are commanded to pray for all, 1 Timothy 2.1. And Christ himself afterwards prayed indiscriminately for all, saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, Luke 23. Calvin again. I reply... The prayers which we offer for all are still limited to the elect of God. We ought then to pray for this man and that man and every man that they may be saved and thus include the whole human race because we cannot yet distinguish the elect from the reprobate. 
And yet while we desire the coming of the kingdom of God, we likewise pray that God may destroy his enemies. And thus Calvin continues and says, we pray then for the salvation of all. And we leave to the judgment of God those whom he knows to be reprobate. Calvin argues this is brilliant theological thinking in his commentary on John here. Calvin argues that this prayer, this prayer is not an example for us. Quote, For Christ does not now pray from the mere impulse of faith and of love towards men, but entering into the heavenly sanctuary, he places before his eyes the secret judgments of his Father, which are concealed from the likes of you and me. Calvin said, concealed from us. Calvin, Christ expressly declares that they who are given to him belong to the Father, and it is certain that they are given so as to believe, and that faith flows from this act of being given. <laughs> now, application per verse 9. Now, since Christ prays for the elect only, it is necessary for us to believe the doctrine of election. This is Calvin, verbatim. If we wish that he should plead with the Father for our salvation, a grievous injury, therefore, is inflicted on believers by those persons who endeavor to blot out the knowledge of election from the hearts of believers because they deprive them of the pleading and intercession of the Son of God. Most of my life, I was one of those causing grievous injury. I quote Calvin again, and listen carefully. This is just Calvin. These words serve also to expose the stupidity of those who under the pretense of election give themselves up to indolence, laziness, whereas it ought rather arouse us to earnestness in prayer as Christ teaches us by his example. And while the term frozen chosen was certainly not known in Calvin's day, it is exactly what he calls here stupid indolence, avoidance of activity or exertion, laziness. Is that true of you particular? Well, are you praying for those around you that don't know Christ, who manifest by their behavior, they would suggest that they don't know Christ, Pretty easy to tell. Are you praying for them? The Father knows who the elect are, but we don't. So we pray for them. We plead for them. We reach out to them because 
God tells Paul, Acts 17, Go on preaching, do not be afraid, for I have many people in this city. Said he had never been touched by the gospel yet, but God says, I've got a bunch here who are going to come. You just preach. And Paul, I'm not telling you who they are. <laughs> the Presbyterian church should be the most evangelistic church out there. More than the Baptist. But often Presbyterians aren't. And we allow our confidence that we are of the chosen because we sense his pleasure and his presence to allow us to fall into what Calvin calls stupid indolence, laziness, slothfulness. This is exactly why we're having the conference next weekend. Because we want to reach out to those that don't look like they're saved, don't behave, don't sound, don't smell like they're saved, but they need Christ, and God knows who the elect are. He doesn't tell us. Verse 10. Verse 10 is deep doctrine. <laughs> we must therefore believe that there is such a unity between the Father and the Son as makes it impossible that they shall have anything separate from each other. Husbands and wives are not like that, are we? No. But a truly blessed marriage, there's not much that isn't shared, but the Father and the Son... All things that are the fathers are the sons, and all things that are the sons are the fathers. There is a complete unity. Thus, Christ never will cease to care for our salvation, since he is glorified in us. Verse 10. Now, verse 11, he says, I am no more in the world. Christ lived out, and listen to it carefully. Christ lived out his earthly life with one foot in heaven and one foot upon the earth. He's obviously still there. Why does he say, I'm not more in the world? He's still got the arrest and crucifixion and death to go through. But he's already, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He's got one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. That's chapter 13. Pastoral application. And I quote one wiser than I. What better and wiser course can you take than to think that your one foot is here and your other foot in the life to come and to leave off loving, desiring, or grieving for the wants, the lacks, lacking things that shall be made up when your Lord and ye shall meet and we, when ye shall give in your bill that day of all your wants, your lacks here. 
It's wise, wise counsel. He was physically present, but he was already with his father. And he'll say, he even said at the close of 16, each of you will be scattered to his own home. You'll leave me alone. And yet, I'm not alone. Because the Father is with me. Wow. It's interesting in verse 11 that Christ prays to the Father, calling him Holy Father. It's rather unique. Holiness was defensively ascribed to God throughout the Old Testament. The, the prophets had well established that God was a holy God who hated sin. Moses, in fact, is barred from entry to the promised land. God puts him to death on top of Mount Nebo, saying, You did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. God's holiness and our disobedience are incompatible. So while the Old Testament clearly established the holiness of God, a, a divine being distant and aloof as he showed himself on Mount Sinai, Jesus mostly spoke of God in terms like Father, Father. But holiness is still there. Christ's ascription to him as Holy Father reminds us of both aspects of God's nature. Because you can't come to him as Father unless the issue of holiness has been satisfied by your sins on Christ and his righteousness on you. Then he says that they may be one even as we are. The being verb here in the Greek, the word for being or existence, is in the present subjective active, which speaks of a state achieved and continuously being. Now, this is the commentator. Listen to it. It helps Helps a great deal. Jesus does not pray that they may become one. That's what it may look like. Jesus is praying that they may continually be one. It's already been done. By those who are in Christ, we are one. We are. Christ's prayer has been answered and will be answered. You don't think that the schisms of the church could affect <laughs> the sovereign Lord's purposes and decrees. Nay, nay. It is the divine unity of love referred to all wills bowing in the same direction, all affections burning with the same flame, all aims or purposes directed to the same end, one blessed harmony of love. Pastoral reflection. What is my contribution to that unity? which mirrors the unity of the Father and Son. What is my contribution in my home? 
What is my contribution in my church? You know, on our honeymoon, we went to Lake of the Ozarks. That's why we like Lake of the Ozarks, Lloyd. I grew up going there. And Tammy and I rented a good-sized motorboat. I don't know how many gallons of gas. The thing about Tammy, what she cooks, she cooks so much it spills over. She's always just filling it up. If she has a campfire, she wants the biggest campfire. And she got a hold of the throttle and pushed it to the metal all over that lake. <laughs> we burned an entire tank of gas and went real fast, real fast. But the amazing thing, this is why I said that, the amazing thing is the faster you go, the bigger the wake. That's really cool. It's fun skiing behind, too. I've done that. What kind of wake have you left in your home this week by your actions and words? What's the wake look like? What kind of wake are you leaving in this church body by your actions and words? Have I left a wake of peace this week? Some of us need to repent. All of us need to repent and seek forgiveness for the impact we have made and do make on those around us. 1712 brings us to a challenge. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Hmm. But it would be an unfounded argument if anyone were to infer from this that the revolt of Judas is to be ascribed to God rather than to Judas because the prediction laid him under a necessity. That's Calvin. Calvin goes on. It is not in the prophecies, therefore, that we must go to seek the cause of events. I acknowledge indeed that nothing happens but what has been appointed by God. But the only question now is, do those things which it has foretold or predicted lay men under a necessity which I have already demonstrated to be false? That's John Calvin. Nor was it the design of Christ to transfer to Scripture the cause of the ruin of Judas, but he only intended to take away the occasion of stumbling when Judas shows his true colors, which can shake timid souls, questioning devastated souls who are fleeing. Verse 13, how blessed is our Savior Jesus Christ that he here shows the reason why he was anxious praying for them was not concerning their, their future condition, but rather to provide a remedy for their anxiety. You catch that? That is huge. Jesus begins the final discourse saying, Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Stop fretting over things. Stop being anxious. Take the pot of boiling water off the stove. Quit letting it sit there and simmer. 
Don't let your heart stop. He literally says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. He says it two times in chapter 14. Christ's purpose then and now was that their minds might be calm for their salvation as in no danger, having been placed by Jesus, the second Adam, the Messiah, into the hands of the Father. Pastoral question, reflection. Some of us lack the joy he speaks of because we are so busy being anxious. You can't have joy and anxiety in the same heart. Now, that one will overcome the other. I guess that's the point. One will overcome the other. The loss of anxiety, the loss is inner peace, lost contentment, lost and confident, quiet trust through storms, which come in this world. You have troubles, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. (laughs) And I say this to you, Philippians 4, Philippians 4 remains some of the best biblical counsel to be had for a child of God who has a pattern of worry, anxiety, and fear. Philippians 4 should be memorized. 6 through 9 or 10. Verses 14 through 16. 14 through 16. Christ here declares the cause of the hatred of the world. His, his disciples have embraced the word of God which the world cannot, has not received. And God will not suffer his sheep to wander among wolves without showing himself to be their shepherd. I pray that you have seen that by his hand here. Calvin is very substantive in verse 15. Quote, Christ shows in what the safety of believers consists not Not that they are free from every annoyance and live in luxury and at their ease, but that in the midst of dangers they continue to be safe through the assistance of God. In short, he promises to his disciples the grace of God not to relieve them of their anxiety and toil, but to furnish them with invincible strength against their enemies and not to suffer them to be overwhelmed by the heavy burden of contest which they will have to endure. Some of our number are facing a very heavy burden. We pray for them efforts. Anna's mother has been in the hospital for two or three days. I do not know the condition. We need to continually be aware of who needs prayer. If therefore we wish, Calvin, to be kept according to the rule which Christ has laid down, we must not desire exemption from evils or pray to God to convey us immediately into a state of blessed rest, but must rest satisfied with a certain assurance of victory. One wiser than me wrote, Welcome, welcome, Jesus. 
by whatsoever way thou comest, if we can get a sight of thee. And sure I am, it is better to be sick, providing Christ come to the bedside, draw back the curtain, and say, Courage, I am thy salvation, than to enjoy health, being lusty and strong, never visited by God. I'd rather be sick. 16 through 17. The apostles, yes, the church is not of the world, even as their beloved Lord and Savior is not of the world. Therefore, the world hates the church walking after manifesting Jesus. The world hates the church because it hates God and his Christ. Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed, Septuagint Greek translation, Christos, Christ. Christ means anointed. This world, this nation is taking its stand against the Lord and his anointed. Verse 18, I'll touch during final application very shortly. But why did he say verse 19? Look at it. Why? Because he consecrated himself to the Father so that his holiness might come to us. For as the blessing on the first fruits is spread over the whole harvest, so the Spirit of God cleanses us by the holiness of Christ and makes us partakers of it. Nor is this done by imputation only, for in that respect he is said to have been made to us righteousness. But he is likewise said to have been made to us sanctification because he has presented us to his Father in his own person, that we might be renewed to true holiness by his Spirit. And these words, rich, besides this, besides though this sanctification belongs to the whole life of Christ, and yet the highest illustration of it was given in the sacrifice of his death. For then he showed himself to be the true high priest by consecrating the temple in heaven, the altar, all the vessels, and the people by the power of his spirit. Final application. The doctrine of election is given by God one big reason to abase pride. terrible thing if one who embraces the doctrine of election also walks in pride. Terrible thing. The doctrine of election is given by God to abase pride. It is by God's grace through faith that comes his choosing and election. Salvation is grounded in the Father's granting and drawing the sinner to the Savior. But the doctrine of election is not given for us to assume that the apparently unsaved 
are not chosen. The doctrine of election is not given for us to have pride, nor is it given to look down our nose on those who don't look like they're chosen at all. The doctrine of election should stir the believer, arousing him or her to prayer and action to the lost around them. Finally, our love to Christ and to his beloved Father should begin on earth as it shall be in heaven. Think of a wedding. Think of your wedding. The bride taketh not by a thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garment as she doth in her bridegroom. Even so we in the life to come, though clothed with glory as with a robe, shall not be so much affected with the glory that goeth about us as with the bridegroom's joyful face and presence. Let's pray. Blessed Father, how we thank you for thy beloved Son, how we love him, and how we are grateful that through Christ we are brought back to you, our Father. I pray for the hearts gathered here today. I pray that they'll be soft, receptive of what thy word says, and that you'll find in us tender, repentant, loving, humbled children who love you with all that we are. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.